0: Thank you. How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good, good. Feel free to uh be rowdy. I heard this was a Pentecostal church. Is that true? I just double checking. Um, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and then uh, just about uh, six years ago, um, I planted a church in California in a nightclub, and so if you can just imagine the kind of rowdy people that prefer to go to church in a nightclub, uh, those people make a little bit of noise, and, uh, and so I appreciate that um, as I'm speaking and preaching, so feel free to holler back at me if you feel like it. Um, it makes me feel good up here, so, um, well, my name is Adam Smith, and i um, I, uh, I'm a, a pastor in, um, in California, and we've been out there for about six years and uh, just have seen God do some incredible things, and I have an appreciation for the struggle of what it's like to plant a church and commit to a community, and that's why I have a lot of respect for your pastor who has been in this community for so many years, committed to see God reach the people um, of this city. Aren't you proud that you have a, such an incredible pastor? And that's something that um, for my life that I long for is to dedicate myself to one community and buckle down and be there and see God do things year after year after year. You guys really truly are blessed. If it's been a while since you've uh, shown some love to your pastor, uh, man, send him a thank you card. Uh, He is accepting checks, gift cards, um, anything you want to send his way. He will not turn down, just letting you know. He would never say that to you, but uh, he slipped me a 20 to say it to you, and so I'm willing to just put that out there for you this morning. Uh, well, I want to help you guys get to know me. I, I did bring a picture of my family because they weren't able to come with me just so you can get some context of kind of who I am. I brought a little, a little picture. This is them there. Um, it's okay to be like, oh, because they-, they are kind of adorable. Um, and this is really, uh, especially the guy in the middle, is particularly handsome um, the tall one in the, in the middle there. Um, and th- this is really everything you need to know about my family. This is my beautiful wife, uh, Gretchen, there, who has a love for scars. I, I don't know if you, any, any of the moms out there, like, you have this image in your head of the perfect photo that you're going to take, and it never materializes, does it, moms? Like, it never happens. And so this is my wife pretending that she wasn't just yelling at my kids two seconds ago to try and get it together and just take the picture. Just one good one. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not on board. Uh, Tegan is the one on the right there, and uh, she's, of course, not paying attention and singing and uh, whatnot there. And then Cohen, he's the one in the middle. Uh, he's the one staring directly at the camera very seriously. We call him the lawyer behind his back. Don't tell him I said that. Um, he's very serious. He's the kid who's just like, everything is very, it should be a certain way, and dad, you promised, and why aren't we doing this? And I was told that this would be over by 530. I've got some things i got to do, crank through my to-do list, some chores, Get it together, people. He's more frustrated than his mom is in this photo. And then Zeke's the little one who wore a zebra shirt that doesn't really match anyone else in the photo. Stepped in something on his way out. He's like a little Dennis the Menace kid, redheaded kid. He's hilarious. Um, and this is our family. And so I stepped away from them to be with you guys this weekend to hang out at the Awakening. Where are all the young people at? Where are all the youth over there? You guys are going to have to do better than that. I was a little quiet for uh, The youth response. How many? How many are in in here? You still feel like a teenager a little bit in your mind. Anybody? Okay. All right. It's just your back hurts more now, right? That's the, that's more the big difference, right? But in your head, it's the same. It's the same deal. Well, I want to speak to you this morning um, from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. If you want to go ahead and get your place there, we're going to be there in just a moment. Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in about verse 36. And uh, if you are taking notes this morning, which I hope you do, write down some things you feel like God is speaking to you. The title of my message is, You're Not Supposed to Be Here. You're Not Supposed to Be Here. If you are not taking notes, it's the same title. That's how titles work. Just (laughs) apply that across the board. You're not supposed to be here. You ever have somebody tell you that before? You're not supposed to. You ever just get that feeling like, I don't think I'm supposed to be. I feel like I'm out of place right now. I've had that feeling many times in my life. Um, When I was in uh, college, I had this roommate named Travis, and uh, he was a little crazy. I'll be real with you guys. Uh, he he wanted to be uh, a firefighter. Um, and, uh, and so we were in Bible school because that makes sense. You want to be a firefighter, go get some three years of theology under your belt first to make sure you can take out and are properly outfitted to be a firefighter. And so um, he would get these calls in the middle of class, uh, in the middle of hanging out on the way to do stuff, um, that there was a fire and he needed to immediately go and check out the fire. And the issue with that was when you would be hanging out with him, If you were with him and he got a call to go to a fire, you were going to a fire. Okay, it didn't matter that you weren't trained, you didn't have equipment, you didn't know what was going on. You had to study, you had to be to work. Uh, If you were in the car with him, you were going to a fire. That was what was happening in your life. There was no like sense in trying to get away from it. And so, uh, like instantly, he would just be like, he would get the call and he'd be like, "I'm gonna save the world," and he would just like flip the car around. I don't know what kind of, like, he was a volunteer firefighter. I'm not sure what kind of, like, permissions they gave him to bend, maybe even break the traffic laws. But he took all advantage of that. He had this little red siren. I don't know if they gave it to him or if he bought it on the black market. Neither would have surprised me. And he put that on the roof of his car, and you just like grab onto anything, and he would just peel off. He had this Jeep Grand Cherokee, and we, he'd jump a median. Like I remember one time we were uh, going along, and he couldn't figure out how to get. He could see the fire, we couldn't figure out how to get there, and there was a cornfield between us and the fire, and he was like we're going for it! And just plowed through the cornfield. I was like, ah. I was praying so much, you know what I mean? Like, just like, Jesus, help us not die. And like, stuff's flying up. I think we hit something. Uh, you know, I hope it wasn't a person, you know what I mean? It was like some sort of an animal in the field. He just keeps going. We get to the fire and he would just jump out. He wouldn't even always park the car officially. He just kind of like slow down a little bit and jump out and roll and like jump into the action. And so I would just, I, I probably went to like 50, 60 fires when I was in college hanging out with this guy. And I was just, weird weird kid, you know, dressed partially in a suit, just standing on the side of a fire. That's not bothersome, right? When you see someone who is like standing on the side of a fire, just kind of standing and watching things and just reading a book, in CSI, that's always the guy who started the fire, right? That's always the one they're looking for. He's the one, right? Right? <laughs> I was that creepy guy just standing there. Um, and, at, you know, at first it was kind of interesting. It was kind of like fire, you know, because all guys, we just like fire. It's just the way that we're made. There's the caveman inside of us. We're just fascinated. You got guys got a PhD. Somebody lights a giant fire in front of him. He's like, you know, and, and he wants to put meat on it and eat it. You know what I mean? It's just the way we are. But after a while, it just kind of got like old hat, and I would just be standing there. But every, every so often, I would just be standing there observing the fire, trying to read a textbook by the light of someone's, you know, dreams going up in flames, which it sounds dark a little bit, and it was. And so I'm doing this, and somebody would come up to me inevitably and just be like, hey, um, what are you doing here? And I would, I would try and launch into the explanation, none of which made sense to them, and they would quickly let me know, you are not supposed to be here. You are not supposed to be hanging out on the edge of a fire. Like, you, you shouldn't be in this vicinity. You're probably going to die of, like, your lungs collapsing, okay? You need to exit the premises. You look very suspicious, sir. And here's what I think. I think we all kind of have these moments in life, these moments in which we have this sense that we're not supposed to be somewhere, Maybe for you, it happened like in a work environment where you showed up um, to a meeting and you got the impression that everybody maybe had read a book that you hadn't read or got a memo or something had happened and, and, and you felt like out of place. You felt like maybe you weren't supposed to be there. Maybe for you, it was a sort of a situation where, um, you know, you were going to something that was a formal occasion and nobody told you it was formal. So you showed up in cargo shorts and it got awkward real quick. And you're like, I'm not supposed to be here. And yet, here's what I think is interesting. In in, in my years of being a pastor, as I talk to people about kind of this sense, this feeling, what I find again and again is that so many people have this this sense of, I'm not supposed to be here, is largely connected to experiences with church. And I wonder if you've ever discovered this in conversations with people in your life that... um, they've had this, this feeling stepping into a church environment or stepping, uh, being around certain Christian friends or being in certain religious uh, environments that, like, they, they weren't really supposed to be there. And who knows why they had that, that sense or that feeling that they didn't belong, that they were out of place, that this wasn't their place and their people And I think um, for so many people that I come in contact with, especially a lot of young people, there's this sense that the church is something that, like, my parents' generation is a part of. That's something that my grandma is involved with, but it's not for me. It's not my place. I'm not supposed to be there. And maybe for particular people in your life, it's that they had this sense that when they showed up, everybody was looking at them, Um, that maybe people were whispering about them. There was this kind of air of judgment kind of swirling around about them, that there was whispering. Or maybe it was more than a feeling. Maybe at some point somebody told them, hey, you're, you're not supposed to be here. You can't be in this place looking like that, dressed like that, talking like that. Maybe they had this sense that they didn't belong. And here's what I think is interesting about this idea, is that people begin to take home with them And hide in their heart this deep belief that like, you know, if that's what people who represent themselves as God's people think about me, that must be what God thinks about me. If people think I don't belong, if people think I shouldn't be here, if people think this isn't my place, if people think that I'm not good enough and these are God's people, then apparently God probably thinks the same thing because people tend to equate an experience with the church as an experience with God himself. We have a tremendous power as the people of God because people understand who God is based on how we represent him. There's a powerful thought to that, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea, this feeling of what does God think about humanity? What does God think about people? How does God respond in an environment in which there are some who are religious who look at somebody who pops in the room and think, like, you're not supposed to be here? How does God see that person, especially inside of church environments. And so I want to look at that with you this morning in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, just say, I got it. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says this. This is Jesus at a dinner party. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. Verse 37, when an immoral woman from that city, I'm just going to pause there. You love how intentionally vague that is? An immoral woman from the city. I think we all know who I'm talking about. You ever ever do that before? You ever talk about somebody without really talking about them? Anybody ever do that before? Very few people raising their hands. So There's a lot of liars in here. We'll do an altar call later. You've done that, right? You've talked about people without technically talking about them. You're like, well, a certain, a certain somebody, a certain particular person who shall remain nameless. Okay, it's Denise. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry if there's a Denise in here. I didn't mean to make you the receiver of all that negativity right there. Where we kind of like, we we start to kind of whisper, we start to reference them. When this story is being told, it it doesn't even tell us the name of this person, only because everybody in the environment in which the story is unfolding, they knew exactly who this woman was. When she walked through the doors, people didn't need to say her name. Everybody knew her name. Everybody knew her story, her background, where she'd been, what she'd done. They'd all whispered about her many, many times before. And and I think, actually, this is a, a huge indicator of exclusivity you know that you've actually created a closed culture when people step into your circle and your instinct is to talk about them instead of talking to them what's she doing here she's not supposed to be here Do you know know what she's done? Do you know what she's been into? I mean, I can't really confirm or corroborate this, but that's not going to stop me from telling you about it. I heard that one time she got involved with this particular situation. Of course, we're all talking about Denise right now. And I'll just tell you that, like, if you act like it would be weird for someone like that, whatever that is for you, if you act like it would be weird for someone like that to be here, they won't be here. Because the truth of the matter is, nobody wants to be where they're not welcome. Have you noticed that about your life? And you can tell, can't you? Because you've walked into an environment before in which you felt like, they don't want me here. I don't belong here. They're staring at me. I'm not supposed to be here. They're whispering. There's a sense that I'm not supposed to be in the room. And, and definitely there would have been... This kind of feeling in the room where this woman walks into. I don't know if you remember, anybody used to watch Sesame Street back in the day? Or maybe still, I don't know what your life is like. You know, maybe that's just how you relax and wind down. Maybe you've got some kids and that's just your whole world right now. They used to have that little thing that was, uh, the little song where they put up four things and it was like, one of these things is not like the other one. Remember that song? One of these things just isn't the same. And they would have four things And as a kid, you would struggle to figure out which which thing is different. I I brought a picture just to refresh your memory if you don't remember this. They show you four things. Remember as a kid how complicated this was? This is the hardest test in the world. Okay, hold on. There's a fire hat and a fire hat and a fire hat and a fire chief hat. I don't know. What, is this a trick? What's happening? And I'm just, I am just—I show you this because this is how blatantly this woman would have stood out in the room. Like a sparkly top hat in the midst of all fire hats. Because literally there were, there were four people present in this room, and one of them clearly didn't belong. Four types of people. Uh, first of all, there's Jesus in this room that this woman walks into. Jesus, who is God in human form. Jesus, who is brilliant. Jesus, who is perfect. Perfect can be a little intimidating. Then you have the Pharisees. These are like hardcore church people, okay? These are people who've been coming to church their whole life. These are people who, like, they have certain favorite Bible stories because they were there when they happened. You know what I mean? People who were born under a pew, you know what I mean? People who remember back in the day, like, they're just like, my favorite is the King James because I was there when it was written, you know what I mean? Like, people that are just, they've come up, they know all the rules and the expectations and how things are supposed to go and what you're supposed to wear and how you're supposed to talk and how it's supposed to work at church. These are the Pharisees, there in the room. Then you've got the disciples. These are like new believers, people who just got saved. They're all excited, they, they don't even understand what's happening yet, but they're, they're like just passionate about it. These are the people who dare to come down front for worship, even though they don't even know what the songs mean. You know what I mean? They're like, I love what's happening. What's that song about? I have no idea, but it is my favorite. Don't mess with me. These are the disciples. They're just stoked to be there. They're excited about what Jesus is doing. They believe that he came to change the world. And, they're in the room. and then you have an immoral woman, broken, bad reputation, hurting openly sinful, feeling like she doesn't belong. Everybody knows her story. Everybody talks behind her back. This is not a place for her. It was, it was clear who didn't fit. And the second she walks in the door, everybody's whispering, everybody's talking. Everybody's nudging the person next to them. Everybody's talking about her. No one's talking to her. And then she does something that only makes it worse. It says this, verse 37, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that uh, Jesus was eating there, she brought a, a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, and she knelt behind him at his feet, and she was weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, for some of us, we've been in church so long, we listen to that, and it sounds beautiful to us. For some of us, that if we could just critically look at this story for a minute, that's kind of weird. Just, it's a little bit weird. Can we just admit that to ourselves? This is a weird scene. And there is, there's some, maybe you're like, maybe there's just a cultural barrier that I don't totally understand. There are a few cultural things in this story, but even in that context, this is weird. This is an uncomfortable situation. Now, let me just contextualize this in your world so you realize how crazy this is. Let's say uh, that you were at the Olive Garden. Any fans of the Olive Garden out here? Wow, that's an underwhelming response. You do know they have unlimited breast sticks, right? Just double-checking with you. I brought a picture because some of you don't seem familiar with the olive. Gro- hey, Burbockers eat free. You know, that's where they're going for lunch. <laughs> I've never known a Burbocker to pass up uh, a deal, so that's going to be happening. So let's say that you go to an Olive Garden. You show up to an Olive Garden because you are lured there by the unlimited breadsticks and the delicious salad and the dipping sauces, okay? Um, and so you get there, and you're hanging out with some church friends, and it's awesome, and you're just kind of fellowshipping, right? That's what we call it when it's Christian. It becomes fellowship. Uh, you can't just have dinner with somebody. And so we're fellowshipping. You're hanging out. You're interacting. You're talking about stuff. And right at that particular moment, the door opens up, and somebody walks in, and it is clear that this person is a prostitute. And you're like, how would I know that they were a prostitute? Picture what you would think a prostitute would look like. That's how she's dressed, okay? You're like, that part is too low cut. That part is too high cut. You know what I mean? Like, it just everything about it is like, this is not good. And she comes in, and, and everybody's just kind of like, Ugh, this is a little odd. And she comes in, and she's looking around for somebody. And you're like, I wonder who she's looking for. And you're kind of you're kind of halfway in the conversation, but you're a little bit ADD. So you're distracted by, like, her coming to the door. And she whips around, and she makes eye contact with the person you are eating with, the person you're having dinner with, this church couple that you're with, the head usher, the guy who teaches like the marriage bounce back classes, you know what I mean? And she comes in, she makes eye contact with him and you're like, maybe, maybe he just looks like somebody. I mean, he does have one of those faces and then she's just looking and you can see her mouthing his name and you're like, oh, it's about to get good. You ever have that moment where you're like, I should say something, but I kind of want to see what happens, right? You have that sense in your heart, and you just watch it. And so she, she you realize she's carrying something. and She starts to, to kind of walk towards you, and she's carrying this bottle of perfume. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's curious, you know, the fun, flirty kind of fragrance from pop, super sensation, Britney Spears. Maybe it's something like that, okay? And so she kind of comes through, and, and she gets about halfway to your table, and people are starting to kind of look, and she gets about halfway there, and she just loses it. She starts crying. And it's like, it's not like a nice little tidy, like, you know, little sniffle type of cry. It's like an ugly cry. You know what I mean? Where someone just loses it. And she's just like, <laughs> like weird sound, mascaras everywhere. There's like one of those little snot bubbles that's growing she looks wrong, right? People are kind of starting to look. Everyone's starting to turn. She gets to halfway that she like steadies herself on a table. You know what I mean? Like she's going halfway there and she's got this perfume and she's still making eye contact with this guy and she gets over to the table and she's standing right in front of your table and she's just there. Now everyone at your table is looking. Every, you know, people around the restaurant are looking. People are just eating breaststicks, watching like, oh man, this is going to get, is, are the cops crew here? What's happening right now? I might be on TV. And everybody's leaning in and watching. And then, you know, she looks directly at this particular person, and you're kind of looking at him like, I don't know. And, like, his wife's looking at him like, you better not know who this is. (laughs) This is supposed to be a nice evening. And it gets all uncomfortable. And then she opens this bottle of perfume. I mean, we don't know what it is. Maybe it's, you know, something like Curious, uh, the fun flirty flavor from pop super sensation Britney Spears. I mean, I don't know what her preference is is and she unscrews the lid and she kneels down and she gets under the table and now it's just like really getting awkward and she starts to pour this perfume on uh, this guy's feet she takes off his socks and his shoes and she starts massaging this perfume into his feet and and there's nothing really to wipe it up with and show she got her hair up in a little bun and she takes out the little scrunchie you know and she does that little hair thing and then everybody's really getting uncomfortable and the wife you can just tell is not on board And she starts wiping his feet, like with, you know, the tears and everything is kind of merging in and and everyone's looking and everyone's watching and everyone's whispering and everyone's just like, this is uncomfortable. This shouldn't be happening. What's she doing? She's not supposed to be here. That's what's unfolding right here in Scripture. And then in verse 39, it says that, that when the Pharisee who had invited him, when he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Actually, he said it with an exclamation point. She's a sinner! He said it to himself, though. Like he's, This is his inner dialogue. If he knew she's a sinner, he scares himself. You know, he says it so loud. And there's, there's something about this particular sentence that just really bothers me. That makes me angry inside. When I, when, I, when I just focus in on it, when I just read it over and over again, there's something that really sits unsettled with me about it. Maybe it does for you too. There's something about it that makes me uncomfortable. The arrogance, the cockiness, the condescension. I can't believe he doesn't know what kind of woman is touching him. And it, just, it doesn't just make me mad. This actually makes Jesus mad. It says this in verse 40, that then Jesus answered his thoughts. How scary is that for a second? Where you think something, Jesus is like, I heard that. What? Yeah, I can hear thoughts. Not all of them. Oh, yeah, all of them. Uh, I got to go. You know what I mean? (laughs) Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. That's how you know Jesus is mad. You never tell someone you have something to say. You just say it, unless you're mad. And then you're like, oh, I got something to say to you. (laughs) Ha, 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 it's coming. You got to prepare them for the angry burst that's about to happen. And this is Jesus, like, this frustration. I almost see him saying it through gritted teeth in the way that you do when you're frustrated with someone. You don't want to stoop to their level. And then Jesus launches into this story Confronting the attitude in the room about keeping outsiders on the outside because there are certain people that belong here and certain people that clearly don't. You know why Jesus is so angry in that moment? It's not that that certain people thought the moment was awkward. It was awkward. Jesus thought it was awkward. What angered jesus was that people who claimed to speak on god's behalf acted as if this woman shouldn't be there as if she didn't deserve to be in the same room with everybody else as if she didn't belong as if she was less than as if she was some particular form of human trash as if they didn't want her kind in the room let alone at the table So let me just be blunt with you. Getting offended over the inclusion of certain kinds of people offends Jesus. Because in the mind of God, there are not certain kinds of people. There's just people. This is the way in which God sees the world. He doesn't divide things the way that we do. He doesn't categorize he doesn't need to hold people in a certain chamber because they don't measure up to make himself feel better. God is pretty confident with, with, with who he is. It's us who feel the need to do that. You see, in the mind of God, there's just people. There's just imperfect people, people that are just trying to figure it out, people that are trying to figure themselves out, people that are wrestling with who they are and, and what they're doing here and why certain things have happened to them in their life, and why they hurt so bad. People that are wrestling with, like, am I actually worth anything? Does my life matter? When God looks at humanity, he just sees people, one kind of people, his people. People he made, his creation, with whom he is madly in love. People stumbling towards happiness and, and, and fulfillment and connection. People who just want to feel something real. People who want to be more and do more than just barely get by. So I just want to warn you this morning, beware of making the self-righteous mistake of thinking that you are one of God's people and others aren't. Because there's just one kind of people, God's people. You You want to know why the woman was in that room that day? Because she already knew Jesus believed that. That's why she showed up. Because at some point, this woman who had done so many horrible things to mess up her own life, so many things she wasn't proud of, she, she'd lost count. This woman, at some point, she came across someone who spoke on behalf of God that actually made eye contact with her. Who looked at her, not with condescension, but with compassion. Compassion who saw her as a person to be loved, not a product to be used. One day she she met somebody who didn't want anything from her, but wanted so much for her. Someone who talked to her, not at her who told her that she was worth more than what she was settling for, who told her a person who had never had any people of her own. She was told by God himself, you are my people. You see, it would have been unheard of for a prostitute in the first century to have ever experienced anything like this, to have been honored and treated with unearned dignity. Yes, her. That kind of woman. So why did she show up there? Why did she make a fool of herself? Because Jesus loved her. She showed up and made a fool of herself because she had this love that she reciprocated back to Jesus and why did she love Jesus at this passionate point? She loved Jesus for the same reason we all love Jesus, because he loved us first. With no strings attached. Just unending love. He, because he saw her. He really saw her because he, when she, she talked to him, she got this impression that his heart broke on behalf of her brokenness. Nobody ever cared about her enough to, to connect with her on that level. And I, I think a lot of times, I think we often make this mistake of condemning people for where they are without any consideration for how they got there. We, we love to tell people how they should live and like what they need to get right in their life without actually dipping into their story and and, and actually seeing what brought them to this place in their particular story. Let me tell you something about people. If you can't validate their pain, they don't care about your plan. If you can't validate their pain, they don't care about your plan. You ever have somebody come into your life who didn't really know you and tell you what you ought to do and how you ought to live? Even if there was a twinge of you inside that was like, you're probably right. What came out of you was like, you better shut your mouth. You don't know me. You wanted to slap them. You may not have because you're a Christian now. But there was no effort made to enter your world, to get down on your level, to, to validate the experiences that you've had and the complications of life that you're walking through. And because of that, you didn't care what they had to say about how to live on a higher plane or how to live a little bit better or how to receive something that would change your life, your mind, your emotions, because they didn't know where you were coming from. I think a lot of times we think like, but I can help them. I mean, the reason they need to listen to, you know, the plan that I have for their life um, is that, like, if they just do this, I mean, like, they're being so self-destructive. I mean, like, they're limiting their own options. I mean, you don't know the particular person in my life. Like, they're living in sin. They're, they're not considering the future. Like, they're, they're clearly not thinking. Like, like, they're being selfish. They're not living up to their potential. They're not following God's plan for their life. And guess what? Like, whoever came to mind when I was saying all those things, somebody popped into your head. They don't care. Because everybody in this room with Jesus had a plan to improve this woman's life, but only Jesus acknowledged her pain. And that's what made the difference. The Bible refers to God as Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who comes down on our level, the God who gets inside of our world, our complications, our pain, our stage of life, who sits with us in the middle of it. And this is what makes Jesus so powerful. And this is where the church will sometimes get off track because God did not create the church to be some sort of a sinner for shaming people. That's not why we exist. You and me both probably have known some people who were under that impression, but that's not reality. And maybe you think of certain people in your life and you just think, but (laughs) he's a sinner," and so are you. But they're going to hell. That may be so, but the reality is the threat of a future hell to someone who is presently living in one isn't going to get you much traction. And here's the reality of this story what changed this woman's life wasn't the threat of hell later, but the potential of real hope right here and now. And this is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to communicate how God really sees the world, to be a people who accurately represent Jesus, who send a different message than maybe most people are used to getting. Not this message of you're not supposed to be here, but this message of no matter What state you walk in the doors in, no matter how you're dressed, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're wrapped up in in life, no matter what sin has you entangled, no matter what stage of life or rebellion you are in that there's this sense that people who really represent God, the actual church as Jesus envisioned it, sees you, makes eye contact with you, moves towards you and speaks to you, not about you, and says things to you like, this is your place. Welcome to your people. God sees you. He loves you. He has something for you. And we want to know your story. We want to know where you've been We want to know what you've experienced. We want to see the world through your eyes. This is why your church exists. I know your pastor well enough to know this. The goal of this church isn't just to sit and keep the people we already have happy until Jesus comes back. The goal of this church is to always be reaching people who yet have not come to know that they are God's people. This is the reason why your church sets aside time every single year, sets aside money, budget dollars, redesigns a building, uh, prints T-shirts, promotes, rents a carnival stuff to put out on the lawn. There's a reason for that. It's what Emmanuel would do. It's getting down on the level of people of a different generation and saying, I see you. I'm with you. I want to hear your story. And I want you to know that that even though there's people in that building next door that are older than you, that have had different experiences than you, they care about you and they want you to know you belong here. See, I don't know if you remember what it was like to be a teenager, but there's a lot of places where you feel like you don't fit. But the passion of the church is to say that this ought not to be one of them. This ought to be a place that no matter what you've got going on at home, no matter how hard things are with your parents, no matter the kind of rejection that you've experienced, no matter like the rat race that you're running to try and keep up with everyone and and just not get made fun of and just make it through the day and, and try and get that person to notice you and, and try and keep up with your grades and not fail the people that are counting on you and all of the striving that exists, that the church is a place that exists outside of that. It's a place that reflects Jesus, who says there's no striving in here. There's nothing you got to do to prove anything to fit here. There is only a God and his people who stretch open their arms to you who refuse to whisper about you, who don't force you to look and dress and talk exactly like them, but who come into your world in order to show you love, to wake you up to the fact that there is a God who created you, who sees you, and who you can never really be torn apart from because he is chasing you all the while. This is our mission. You see, when I think about the idea of awakening, it's really two things. It's, it's, the, it's the call for a youth culture to wake up to what it would look like to attach your passion to Jesus Christ. But it's also a call to the church to wake up to our call to constantly sacrifice of ourselves, our time, our energy, our money, our stage time to give to the next generation to be able to demonstrate to them how God really sees them because the enemy has planted a voice inside of them that's constantly whispering the opposite. You don't belong here. You're not supposed to be here. You're not good enough. This isn't your place. And the church's responsibility is to wake up and say, we will represent Jesus for who he really is. So here's what I want to do this morning as we get ready to launch into a week with students from all across the city, from all over your campuses, being bussed in from the friends that, that your students are going to invite, maybe people they don't even know they're going to invite yet. I believe that God is about ready to wake up the youth culture of this city. And the truth of the matter is, is that they need you behind them. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. If you believe that God has set up for this particular week to be the jumpstart of a revival that catches on in your young people, would you just stand to your feet in this place? I want to pray in these next few moments, and I want to invite you to pray with me that God would communicate his love and his purpose and his passion for a generation of teenagers who don't yet know the goodness and the depth and the mercy and the grace of God. But I don't wanna do your praying for you. I wanna invite you to pray. And if you remember that season of your life, you better be praying extra hard. This is this a tough time? If there's one thing that this generation needs to feel from you, it is your prayers. So let's do this in these last few moments. Let's lift our voices and pray for what God is about to do, that God would break through and that the incredible and even the impossible would happen in these coming few days. Just begin praying right now. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishear.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.